Hello, legends, and welcome to today's show. Catching up with Cub, as always, is brought to you by Cub, the Club United Business, Australia's number one members club connecting our country's top entrepreneurs and business leaders. Today, I catch up with Cub member Chris Round, partner at KL Gates, which is one of the largest legal firms on the planet. Chris is an intellectual property lawyer. He actually registered Cub's trademarks along with the trademarks of tons of other members, uh, and he specialized in doing the trademarks for some of the biggest sporting leagues in our country. Uh, we had a great chat because everything Chris said was incredibly valuable to all business owners, which is basically the importance uh, of trademarking and how to protect your brand and, and your business. A lot of people start and they don't get the legal protections in place for their name and and um, for their brand and for, for, for everything. And you know, eventually you get big enough, you're like, shit, I need to do that. And Chris walked us through that process and it was just a brilliant conversation. I hope you enjoy the show. How long have you been a member for? Since December 2018. Okay, so you're coming, what does that mean? You're going into your third year this year? Yeah. Wow, doesn't time fly? I actually, like, we've known each other for almost three years then. Yeah, well... Yeah, we're into the third year. We just met on that couch over there. Did we really? Yeah. I can't remember the first time we met. I met. I, I remember, but that's okay. <laughs> Whatever. Well, now you, you meet are, a lot of people, Daniel. Yeah, yeah, but uh, did I? Three years. Would I have? Did I? Did I sign you up into the club? Or, yeah, I did myself. Yeah, that's very odd. I remember going to your office. Is that uh, anyway? You are now uh, very much positioned as the patent attorney uh, that. Uh, many members in the community turn to when it comes to locking in their, uh, how would you describe it? Their brands, their, their, brands. their IP or their. Yeah. So um, my practice is largely intellectual property law. So it's trademarks and brands, mm-hmm. which is my, the biggest part of my game, but I also do copyright. So the protection of, uh, you know, your artistic works, your, your business documents, whatever. And then I do registered designs and I am not a patent attorney insofar as I don't draft patents. Mm-hmm. So you need to be a scientist or, okay. a, or a doctor. To do that. Yeah, correct. So I have an arts degree. Oh, so I'm not, I'm not a someone who can sit down and pull apart an iPhone and explain how it works. So but what's the side you do? I will, I will do the branding of it, what it looks like. Okay. Whether someone is... So, so you, you prevent someone from, for example, stealing our Cub logo. I would prevent someone from stealing the Cub logo, correct. So um, if someone came out with a business that was called Cub and that business was doing um, some membership service, I would stop that. Okay, cool. And and um, before before you go on, I've got a present for you. Give it to which me. Which I think you'll enjoy. Please. Throw my way. Also, thank you for catching my stumble. About That's time okay. A, about time a member's done that. So, Daniel, this is Coca-Cola's latest campaign. No. And it's share Sherry. a Coke with legend. And you, my friend, are a legend. <laughs> oh, so. Thank you, sir. That is amazing. And to the listeners, members, I know you'll understand this, but for the listeners who are uh, not yet members, every single Monday <laughs> – I email – oh, also, they were not from this podcast. and was like, hello, legends. But every Monday I email the community and address everyone as hello, legends, hmm. blah, 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 blah. This is my 
This is awesome. Should we crack this together right now? I think we right need now? to crack it. I'm going to do it up here for a bit of sound effect. <laughs> That's mad. Oh, thank you, sir. Cheers. So you'll be pleased to know that the branding lawyer had to go to Coles and purchase three 24-can boxes of Coke Zero to get two legend cans. No way. How many did you purchase? 72. This is awesome. I love that. Just to get the two of us, yeah. two for us today. Just for this moment. Oh, well, look, I am going to treasure this moment greatly. You know what, though? I Because I know you work with a lot of members and whatnot. Yeah. But I actually don't know, and like I said, I've known you for a while, but I actually don't know that much about you personally. When you share with uh, me and the listeners about yourself. So you, you are a, a partner at, at the, the legal firm Canal Gates, which yep. is one of the largest firms on the planet. Is that correct? Okay. So um, I studied law at university in the 90s, started at a Melbourne and Sydney-based firm called Middleton's, and then we merged with a Perth firm and then we merged with a Brisbane firm. So we were – top 10 firm in Australia. And I made partner in 2010. So that means I um, effectively gained the ability to sign out my own letters and and to be someone that the firm thought was responsible and, you know, had a good future with the firm. So then in 2013, the firm in Australia merged with the global firm K&L Gates. And for your listeners' benefit, the Gates in K&L Gates is Bill Gates's father. So I actually didn't know that. Yeah. So my firm, Kilpatrick and Lockhart was a Pittsburgh firm and Preston Gates and Alice was a Seattle firm. And when those two firms merged, they became K&L Gates. So my firm actually incorporated Microsoft and I still, um, I now do Bill Gates's philanthropic work. So um, the firm does more with his, you know, the billions he's spending on, all the good things as opposed to the Microsoft work now. Oh, wow. So, um, yeah, it's a really interesting story. The firm I joined was like 15 partners. And that was the Australian firm. Correct. These are all very suits. Yeah, correct. Very suits. <laughs> so the firm, the firm I joined had 15 partners. The firm I'm now a partner of has 900 partners and 3,500 lawyers and turns over a billion US a year mm-hmm. in fees. So um, – we're the largest fully integrated law firm in the world. And the reason why that matters is a lot of global firms are a bunch of local firms that trade under the same name, right? So Cub Melbourne and Cub Sydney are not related in any way. They are just Cub, right? So the difference with my firm is like Cub is we are in fact one firm and my partner in New York and my partner in London my partner in Melbourne share the same profit pool as me, which is good for oh, me wow. yeah. as a business person, but it's also good for my clients. What, why did they structure it like that? Because they didn't, they believed that it doesn't matter how big the firm is, the firm needs to remain as if it was just the five people in Pittsburgh or the eight people in Melbourne or the 10 people in Seattle. And the only way the firm believed that it could retain its integrity and its ethos and, and the way it managed itself was to be one profitable mm. and one firm. That's a really interesting uh, thought. And but what about you? 
Where are you from? What, where, what did you always want to be a lawyer? What, what were you like in school? So, did you, um, were your parents lawyers? No, my dad was an electrical engineer who helped design switchgear, including for Loyang A. So if you're ever driving down the, you know, the coal stacks in the in the Latrobe Valley, my mum was an executive assistant. So I grew up in uh, Lower Templestowe. So, you know, I've always been in Melbourne. Where's Lower Templestowe? Exactly. Where is Lower Templestowe? <laughs> Mind <laughs> you, I'm not the best geographical analysis analyzer like, of Melbourne. Lower Templestowe is like 15 kilometres from the city. It's just your standard suburb. Mm -hmm. um, I, I went to school, then I went to law at Monash, and then I started work in the city, and then I moved to the city. So I still I still you know, live in the city. And what made you want to be a lawyer? Um can I give you the smart-ass answer, which was I did law because smart kids do law. Mm. And um, it wasn't until I studied IP that I went, I oh, actually, um, this is really interesting as opposed to um, I'm going to sit there and draft contracts all day or um, I'm going to um, deal with property. Intellectual property, when I went in there, we were doing – you know, cases about Coke cans, cases about um, – uh, in my career I've done cases about car parts, done cases about cheese cooking machines. Um, I do work for the Australian Football League, so I've done cases about the club's names. You know, for me they were much more interesting. You could explain to your mum what I do and your mum would have an opinion as to whether – this case was a winner or a loser because everyone can look at a brand, right? So almost, almost IP law is more relatable. I always thought it was more relatable than than typical law. Correct. And if my partners listen to this podcast, they're going to go, "Yeah, that's you," because you don't like drafting contracts that are more than <laughs> five pages. You don't know what you're doing. Because a lot of people think law is also a very glamorous thing, but there's a lot of law which is not so glamorous. There's a lot of reading and contracts and, and just looking at details. and There's a lot of that, Daniel. And um, that's not to say that in the IP world we don't um, read cases and, and read contracts and all that. But for us, every good IP lawyer has a bunch of stuff in their office. So whether it's, um, like I said, car parts, we had – I had a case about HSV, Holden Special Vehicles, parts. So we had – the front of cars in our office, literally bumper bars. Because you had to look at them and Correct. study them and Correct. see the so, proportions um, and differences. I've got beer bottles in my office. Um, one of my colleagues is doing cases at the moment about um, a product called Jelly Cat. So their office is full of kids' toys. <laughs> so the IP lawyer always has the interesting stuff in their office. Yeah, and the fun things to talk about as well. Correct. You go to talk to the graduates and it's like we always bring a show-and-tell box of of stuff that, you know, and people can, like, look at a dress and go, you know, is this dress a rip-off of this dress? And like I said, everyone has an opinion. Mm. Like, you don't need to be trained for 20 years to, to go, that looks <laughs> like that, right? But the law behind IP must be, like, the whole structure of the whole thing is, is quite, I mean – it must have taken so long to develop. Like imagine creating like just a legal framework for yeah. anything. Yes. Like imagine a legal framework around what, you know, what is legal and not legal in regards to, if we just use this cocaine again. Yeah, this cocaine's a best example. Yeah, yeah. so 
if I'm a Coke competitor, I'm yep. Cub Cola. Yeah, correct. <laughs> so Cub I'm Cola, Cub, yep. Cub Cola needs to be aware of the branding of the first of all, it's about the brand. Yeah. Right. So Coca Cola has a trademark registration for for its Coca Cola name. It has a registration for that logo. Mm-hmm. So they'd be two separate registrations. Um, it probably doesn't have a registration for no sugar because that's a descriptor, right? So the difference is you can't own words that other traders need to use. So Cub Cola, if it doesn't have sugar. You can't own Cub Cola, no sugar. Or you can own Cub Cola but not the no sugar part. Correct. So you could never stop someone else using no sugar. But what about zero, Coke Zero? Well, funnily enough, I used to drink Coke Zero, but apparently one in two Australians didn't understand that the zero meant zero sugar. And that's why they had to change the name. So there's no Coke Zero anymore? Yeah, welcome. To, welcome. Yeah, <laughs> welcome to the future. Coke Zero so is gone. It's Coke No Sugar now. Correct. And the reason why, I tell you, this is true. But it's the same brand. It's, it's the same like black because you know how it's diff- got the Yeah, it's black. Yeah. It's, a different pro- it's a different formula. I'm telling you, one in two Australians did not understand that Coke Zero had no had zero sugar. One in two. <laughs> That's why they changed it. That's why much. they changed it. Well, I mean, it does say what it. You know, it's more descriptive. I would have thought it wasn't hard to understand, <laughs> but um, I, I don't want to say that. So the second thing about this Coke can that you need to understand is is, is the shape of it. Mm-hmm. So Coke, you'll see the bottle there. Coke owns the shape of that bottle, the iconic Coke. Bottle shape. That traditional glass Coca-Cola bottle that you'd crack open up on a hot day. Correct. That's owned by Coke. Around the family, around people you love, enjoying yourself. Exactly. So that's owned. Whereas the can, I think every can's the same, right? But let's say Coke, let's say Coke made a brand new can that was a pyramid, right? They would go off and register that pyramid. And then no one else, Cub Cola, could not use that. But so pyramid. why do all of these soft drink brands have cans that are the same shape? Why can't? Why didn't Coke trademark this can? Because shape? I think you'll find the packaging. So the packaging people, whoever does the packaging for the cans, mm-hmm. I think it's cheaper for oh. the beverage community to have a so standard same sized can. can and therefore increase their profits. Correct. So they're willing to sacrifice the can. Being their can, they're willing to make their cans the same in order to increase profits across the industry. So I don't know that answer, but no, that, that but would be what I would a, assume. That's what you would assume. You would only go a, a proprietary shape bottle costs more. And that's why you never see the traditional Coca-Cola glass bottle anywhere because it probably costs more. It definitely costs more. But um, Pepsi has its own shape bottle. Its own glass bottle is a different shape to Coke's bottle. But you'll like Sprite's bottle is different to Coke's bottle, and Coke does Sprite. Yeah, but they're different brands, so they're, they're trying to obtain a different market Correct. share, and they, they want to have different identities. But I think that's really interesting what you said. Well, that's probably why, because the manufacturer of the cans can produce them much cheaper if they all have the same cans. Correct, and and, and isn't that the same shape as a beer can? I, How funny! I assume that every can in Australia is the same. You know, I'm actually friends with the. Uh, I'm actually best friends with the family that makes the Coca-Cola cans. I swear this is not a made-up well, story. I'm, this is this I, is a true fact. 
I, uh, it's an Irish family. Really? Yeah. Well, I drink a lot of Coke Zero, so I should. I'm going to ask this. Sh- I'm going to ask sh- Dad. Ship me a box. <laughs> well, I'm going to get us some legend, some yeah. more legend one. That's so interesting, though. How incredible! And and uh, have you worked on some interesting? Are you allowed to talk about the cases that you've so, worked on? So, like, um, you've obviously done Cub. Yeah, correct. So I registered Cub's trademark. So it's on the public record. Yeah. So if you go to IP Australia's website, you can see who's registered. Because it's it's a scary thing. Because it's almost like you, as a early stage business, you don't do it straight away because you're like, well, I don't even know if this business is successful yet, and also the money's got to go towards more. You know, you don't have money, so your money's going yeah. towards things, and then you get more successful and more successful, and suddenly you're like, oh shit, my brand actually means something. Yeah. So this is where I stop you and say, that's not what I recommend. So. The registration of your trademark for your brand at the start is a business expense, which if you got me to do it, is say two grand, right? Yep. And if in three years time when you become a bigger business and you have and you have more money to spend, if you get a letter of demand from BHP, I'll just say, you know, a global big company. Yeah. Big scary big scary company, yep. um, Nike. Um, whoever, big company says, look here, little, little chap, you're using my trademark, change your name now. And they've got a registration and you didn't bother checking. You're infringing. Mm. You're going to have to change your name. Could they sue you? Yes, they could. Sue and you. that, so you could get sued for and, a, but they're not going to, it's not worth the money spent. Well, it depends, take. Daniel. It depends if, um, they think your business is impacting on their business sufficiently that, that that you could get sued. So, I mean, I act for a lot of big companies that do write letters, letters of demand to very small companies. Mm. Like Just change your name. Correct. Like the Cub membership is full of um, small businesses that could receive a letter from someone like me saying, hi, um, madam, you've changed, you've registered this company and you've started your own marketing business called Wolf and we are Mr. Wolf and we're going to come after you. And the, the usual letter of demand will say, change your name within seven days and we'll do nothing more about it. Because as you said, you're not going to start an infringement proceeding. Well, the, if Most the people, people don't just, have any money anyway, correct. it's not worth you spending the money to... Correct. You know, 99 times out of 100, the little business goes, oh, my God, I didn't know, I didn't know, and they change their name. Mm. But that's a hassle for that business. Yeah. They have to change their website, their social Potentially media handles, logo. their logo, their business cards, their whatever, their collateral. So um, if they have a physical presence, they need to change their signage. So what you're also saying, though, is you don't need to do um, – um, all. And we'll talk more about how trademarking actually works, and because I know when you did Cubs, that there are different categories that yep. you can only. And I want to talk more about that. But um, what you're saying is the way like a, a new business should start. So maybe the way all the members should have thought about having started mm. was when you register your domain, like your website domain. Mm. That's also at the same time when you should register your name. Your well, you should at industry. least go to IP Australia's website and make sure that no one else has your name. So in you, your you, category. In your category. So you may not need to register your trademark on day one, but you at least need to make sure that you're not infringing from day one. And so if you um, 
to explain to the, to the listeners, there are 45 classes of goods and services and therefore IP Australia will register your, your trademark against a certain class. Which is what, what, what the for category. For example, a category. Yeah. For example, the cub brand is registered with respect to um, business services, educational services. Uh, so, so business to business, communication, social club, um, the educational things we do, and um, it's into three three classes. So, someone else could register cub if they were doing a musical instrument. Like cub guitars. Cub guitars. That's fine. That's fine. So that's got no problems. And in fact, um, it'd be no secret to anyone that there's another very, very big business in Australia called CUB. Mm. Now, um, that doesn't that doesn't do membership services um, and business to business services. It does beer. Therefore, it can do beer. We can do what we do. Cub guitars could do what it does. Cub fertilizers could do what it does. So there could be four, five, ten businesses all with the same name. So the difference with a domain name is you, there's only one domain name, .com.au, right? Whereas the the trademark register is there could broken. Be technically 45. There could be technically 45. Very cool. And and But what about things like, um, let's use the Cub as the example because we're already using it. Obviously, Cub's name is Club of United Business. Mm. It's the sh- just short term yep. that people call the Cub. How does that so, kind of fit into the play? Well, so um, because this business, in fact, has three brands, it has Cub, it has Club of United Business, and it has its logo, um, we registered all three. And so a startup business would usually – have money for one registration and that registration is its name. After a while, the business might well have its name and four sub-business divisions or units. So say, you know, if we're going to keep talking about Coke, you've got Coca-Cola and it has Coke but it has Sprite and it has Fanta and it has whatever their raspberry one's called these days. And Coke would have all those brands. Creaming soda. Creaming soda. Oh, that's my favourite drink. I haven't seen a creaming soda in ages. Oh, Daniel, I should have brought one along. I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, next time. Next time. So a big business is going to register a lot of brands. Another example that I'm familiar with because I do their work, again, is the AFL. So the Australian Football League has a registration for its name, but it also has a registration for each of the 18 teams and it has – Basically, each franchise has, each a, franchise, has a, its own yeah, registration. I think the AFL would blanch at the word franchise, but each club would have its name, Carlton Football Club, Collingwood Magpies, Magpies, and it would also have its logo and it would also have um, other indicia that each club uses. So each club has a, like a little suite of, say, 10 registrations. So going, going back to, to the membership base – some might only need one trademark ever. Like if that's if you're an SEO marketing business and that's what you do and that's your name, you just need to register that and you're done for, for, for life. Once you get a trademark registered, it's registered for 10 years and then you, once you renew it for a fee, you, you can re- keep your trademark forever. And so when does it get complex? It gets complex in two situations. One, where you have a mark that's descriptive. 
So if you choose a name that other traders should be entitled to use, then IP Australia won't let you have it. So there's two schools of marketing thought. There's one, which is get a really distinctive name and it, it doesn't say what it does. Or there's like the CityLink eTag example. eTag, which is literally an electronic tag on your car, that's registered, but it's only registered because they spent so much money advertising it so that people knew that eTag was CityLink, right? For the membership, if the membership base wants to make a search engine and wants to call it searchy, um, that's more difficult than calling more difficult. it Kaploop. Kaploop. Kaploop is a brilliant trademark and we yeah. should register that immediately. What are we going to do with it? Oh, who cares? At least we'll have it. We've got 10 years to do something with it. <laughs> we'll decide renew it then. Yeah, I love it. Let's do, I think I'm going to do that after this. Kaploop. Please Kaploop. send me that. Yep. That's yours. But um, but th- that's what you're saying. So if you tried to – like if Cub was called Business Networking Australia. Co- correct. And, that would and, be much more difficult. And Business Networking Australia is the sort of name – that half your marketing people will think is a great name because it says what it is. It says what it is on the tin. Yeah. What does Business Networking Australia does? It does business networking mm. in Australia. The problem for someone like me is IP Australia is going to say, no way, you can't have that. So that's kind of issue one, descriptive. Because if Cub wanted to make it a slogan, Business Networking Australia, Cub Business Networking Australia, we would legally be able to use that. We should be it describes, allowed. It describes what we do. We should be allowed to do that. The second biggest issue in my job is where you pick a name that's too close to someone else's name and you either need to get a new name or somehow work out how to get your mark registered. So, so part of my most 50% of my job is helping clients get their name registered so that they have a shield against someone writing them a letter of demand or they can use it as a sword against someone ripping them off. But for your little business, for your medium, new, like for the cub average cub member, typically the, part medium sized business. Correct. What would the shield aspect is the first and most important thing. Having your <laughs> registration means they can, no one can sue you and take your name away. Yeah. And once you get like, for example, imagine if cub wasn't done now and we had built this big brand, we've got a great, it's got value. Mm. Someone could have technically, like let's say a competitor could have technically have come in, quickly purchased the trademark, mm. started using our name. Could that happen? And then tell us, hey, stop using the name. So the rules, the rules about trademark are different than business names and domain names because the rule is who is the first to use the trademark is the rightful owner of the mark as opposed to first to register. But if they went on the register before we did, we would have had a hassle in getting it registered. Okay, I would have, so the government has or the law has also taken into consideration, wait a second, we don't want, we don't want to reward the scumbags that quickly correct. go by the register name that's unregistered. Correct. So that happens in China because China is first to file. And so if our members are thinking about China as, a, as one example, China is a first to file, not a first to use jurisdiction. And that means... If you go over there and register Apple as a trademark in class nine for phones before Apple does, Apple effectively has to buy back its trademark. 
There's been 2 million trademarks filed in Australia since Federation. There were 9 million filed in China last year. Wow. So members who are thinking about China and overseas need to understand that while common law countries have first to use like we do, other countries have first to file and then the scumbags come in. And they sell you back the thing that you... Correct. They sell you back your own name to trade in that company, into that, in trade into that country. Correct. There's an asterisk there. There's a bad faith registration requirement, but basically there's extortion. Ah, very scary stuff. <laughs> and tell me about your team at work. Do you, so the partnership, you're a partner at Canal Gates. Do, do you have a team around you that works with you on this type of uh, patents and, and yeah, things? Yeah, so we do. So in Melbourne, we have about 25 people. So we have four partners and we have another 10 or 12 lawyers and a couple of very senior patent attorneys. And we do all the IP for the Australian practice in Melbourne. It's just always been our, our practice. Mm-hmm. I was, um, when I joined the team, there were three of us and um, the second person went off to Hong Kong. So there was me and my partner and mentor, Tony Watson, and I've worked with him forever. And now you know he, I made partner and then Jonathan did and Savannah did. So we've got this team full of people who have been at the firm forever. They've never worked anywhere else. But we sit within the global firm. So the, the firm as an IP firm would be the biggest or one of the biggest IP firms in the world. If all the IP partners left my firm, it would be one of the biggest IP firms in the world. And but there's something nice about because you, you, you've got that business owner entrepreneurial side, but you also have at the same time the security of the large corporation. Yeah. And that's almost an interesting thing to think about because you have the security of someone who uh, would be working at a corporate, let's say, but you also have the entrepreneurial freedom and your business mm. that a standard entrepreneur would have. And I guess what a, like that gives you a great sense of protection and, and power because you can leverage the whole firm, which is really cool. But has anything ever happened? Like what's the – What's the worst thing that's happened to you in in the career? Was COVID bad or? So no, it wasn't the worst thing. So um, so there's a couple of qu- questions there. Um, you do have security when you're part of the big firm, whether it's the big firm in Australia or the even more security now at the global firm. The global firm won't go out of business, right? It's just not going to happen. Um, but I, I have colleagues who wanted to be their own man or their own woman, right? They don't want to be part of the big firm. And so um, I have a very great mate who he and I started in the one office at Middleton's on the 9th of March, 1999. And this guy has had like nine jobs. He's gone in-house. He's now got his own firm, um, but he's a, he's a sole guy. And, and he loves the fact that no one can tell him what to do. And he's always like, Chris, you're a kind of part of the big machine. Whereas I always say, but being part of the machine – gives me security and gives me work because there's 900 partners around the world who are thinking about if someone needs a trademark in Australia or New Zealand to use Chris. So that's, I think, a good thing. Yeah, you basically have great lead flow. Correct, great lead flow. Which means you can focus more effort on the actual work. Yeah, well, yes yes and no. Um, To me, to be a successful partner, you need to be a, a businessman as well. Back in the day, the firm was a profession. Every firm was a profession, right? And the profession found that 
people th- thought they would get lots of work because they were the best. They were, they were very good, had a great reputation. The fact is there's 100 people in Australia who are as good if not better at IP than me, right? I'm not going to tell the listeners I'm the greatest IP lawyer in Australia. It's just not true. Um, there are other people who would read IP cases every day and, and you know, I don't do that. I know what I'm doing, by the way. I'll say that. Um, but the successful partner of a firm has to know what they're doing and give good advice, but that's unconditional. Uh, everyone just believes that's going to happen. They will also have to have a client base for themselves to be a successful partner of the firm. To be contributing to the other partners. Correct. You need to bring work into the firm, whether it's for yourself or for your colleagues, someone has to go and get the work. Now, there are partners who are very, very good at getting work but don't do any work. There are partners who are very, very good at doing work but can't bring in work. The best partners, I believe, are those who are very good at the work and very good at bringing in the work. And so this leads back to your question, what was the worst moment of my career to date? I had a client in 2016, which was at the time my biggest client, go into a liquidation. And so, um, you know, for me as as a recently appointed uh, equity partner of the firm, which means not an income partner, so someone who's bought into the firm, uh, my biggest client has gone into liquidation and they have owed the firm a legitimate sum of money. And um, at that time, if I was a sole business, that would have been devastating, like lose your house sort of stuff. But being part of the firm gave me uh, security in that, well, look, this this firm can lose that amount of money and it doesn't matter, Right. I mean, it mattered to me and my personal circumstance, but to the firm, it was a blip. And it was a good example for you to see the value of being a part of this group. Correct. It's it's basically a community of top-end lawyers Mm. have come together, which is what a partnership is. Correct. It's a partnership, a community of top-end lawyers who come together and say, hey, we can can still operate our own businesses, um, but we're much stronger together. Then we are a part. It's basically little legal cubs. Correct. It's little legal cubs. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's we believe that um, we can produce a better result for ourselves and for our clients as a collective than we can as a sole practitioner. Um, I've met cub members who have said, Chris, uh, can you help me with a software contract? Chris, can you help me with my property transaction? Um uh, can you help me with an environmental issue? Um, I could go on. And I've um, overseen and helped that member get the result thereafter, but but my colleagues have done the work. Mm. And I've been very clear to the cub member. I don't, I don't practice in that area. But that's a good example of like lead flow between you and the partners because mm. you, uh, you're already working with a client. They have a, a, a need that's different to your specialty. So you're able to hand that to a colleague of yours who is their specialty and, and there's that internal lead flow. Correct. So usually, in fact, I'm the easiest sell in the business because every client at the firm has a brand and usually it's a lot easier to sell. Chris will register and proactively help your business and Chris will register your brand than um, I will run your civil litigation matter because mm. that's a hard sell. If you get sued, call me. People don't really want to think about it. I don't want to think about that. 
Yeah, we, we, you can understand why. Because it's something so simple. Hey, do you want to own your own brand? Yes. Okay, well, you need me. But but what's something you do um, that you believe is valuable, exceptional, something you do that's different to other legal firms or something perhaps that listeners uh, could implement into their own, I don't know, their own businesses? Yeah, so for me with my my biggest clients, I take a really active interest in their in their brand and their business. And I'm always looking in the marketplace and um, thinking about where their their brands are positioned and what I might be seeing. So if I act for a taxi brand, which I do, I will look in the marketplace and, and see what's happening. So um, I think a good business is always picking up the phone or emailing their clients and mentioning things that they've noticed without expecting anything from it. Just regular communication. I, I mean, and Correct. I think, you, I mean, you keep saying that, um, you know, you don't ever do anything different to other uh, IP lawyers and whatnot or kind of you being very humble. But one thing you do exceptionally well, um, which a lot of lawyers don't do, is that you're, you're personable. Like you see at Cub, and this is something everyone can take – you know, any business owner could do is uh, when people like you, they want to do business with you. That's exactly right, Daniel. And, and and not just that, but when you like someone, you're friends, you will go out of your way to to sh- to be interested in what that person's doing. And and what you're describing is basically the fact that you actually like the people you work with, and therefore you're in regular communication with them in regards to thoughts around mm. matters that uh, that you could have value in. And and that's um. That's something that uh, actually in a previous podcast uh, that I did with Nick Riley, we were discussing um, with referral programs how your team should be – you should be getting your teams together so your teams have that relationship and that friendship because then they'll, they'll be at the front of each other's minds and they'll, yeah. they'll, they'll be referring back and forth. And you're somewhat describing something very similar, which is that well, it, it sounds like it's not a big deal, but it's a huge deal to, to – uh, to, to be friends in the sense, to care about the people that you like. And one thing you actually wrote in your, in your prep sheet, I don't know where it is, I was trying to find it, but one thing you wrote was looking at a client uh, as a 20-year thing or something like that. Mm. What did you write? I, I, I circled it, but I can't find it now. It was something really interesting, which was that you don't look at your client as a one one um, one file. One so, file, yeah. Yeah, so I think you're entirely correct that people want to work with who they like. So so long as who they like is also capable. Correct. And great. Yeah. Correct. Now, um, yes, I've, I mean, I've obviously talked myself, you don't, you know, you talk yourself down and not up, but you, you show a, a level of humbleness, um, if that's a word. But yes, if you meet someone and you like that person, you're more likely to do business with them. You walk into a car yard and, you know, you walk into Mercedes or BMW or Audi, and they're basically the same, right? And if the Mercedes person spends half an hour with you trying to work out what it is about you that makes you you and then says, why don't you buy this car? And the Audi person says, oh, what's your budget? Oh, uh, here's four cars within the budget. You're more likely to go back to the Mercedes person because they've shown – a level of care about you and they're interested and they like you, right? Yeah. So 
Which is actually something that's not that common with lawyers, though. Correct. Which lawyers, is probably why you stand out. <laughs> lawyers, are, lawyers, it attracts a certain mindset. A black-letter lawyer is going to be a conservative, prim and proper, buttoned-up Detailed kind detailed, of yeah. whose job it is to make sure that, that her client is not going to suffer a damaging outcome and, and, and they worry about that. Now, I do that for my clients, but also um, I've always thought that being who I am has got me to where to where I am in career. And, you know, when I talk about a client as a 20-year proposition rather than a month, I've got clients that I introduced to the firm. They were my clients 15 years ago and they're still my clients. You know, at my age, I, I think I'll be at the firm for another 15 or 20 years or, you know, until I, I decide to go traveling around the world for the rest of my life, but mm. whatever. Um, having an interesting client base full of interesting clients and friends and stories and to me is is a, you know, I, I never ever get out of bed going, oh, I have to go to work today. For me, it's always... I'm, I'm always interested in what I'm doing. So, And you kind of hit the nail on the head in regards to being, you said being who I am, being who you are. You actually enjoy what you do. Therefore, you're you're happy when you're doing it. Therefore, when you meet people, they see a nice, happy guy. He wants to have conversation. Yeah. He wants to get along with people. Like it really comes down, if you, if you nund it all the way back, it comes down to actually enjoying what, what it is you do. And so you asked at the start where I came from to where I am. And I, I, I'm either... I'm either extremely lucky, like extremely lucky, or uh, I'm actually, you know, have done something right because um, I didn't come from a legal family. I rolled into a firm where I knew virtually nobody. I said from the start, I want to do IP because that's what interests me. And they said, okay, you can do IP. And then I sat under a partner watching him and learning. And then I started, I started with my own clients started to be people I knew from school, people I worked with who had left the firm. I, I, I didn't at the start go off and you know, tender for an outcome of, of from someone I never met before. It was just, hey, mate, look, I, I noticed you've gone in-house here. I was looking at your brand portfolio on IP Australia. It doesn't look right to me. Can we talk about it? And then those, some of those people were like, yeah, look, let's talk about it. I'm not really happy with this firm because this firm's doing X, Y, and Z. What can you do for me? And I said, well, I can do, you know, something different. And they're like, well, I'm happy. I'm chatting with you anyway. You, you may as well run my, run my show for me. So in the sports space, once I got one sport, then another sport's like, oh, that seems to be going pretty well for them. <laughs> let's use this guy. It's a bit of social proof. Yeah, and and – so, I, I mean, I love sport, right? I, like I just, I watch too much sport. My wife's like, what are we watching today? It's like, oh, I'm, I'm watching the basketball. I'm watching Rodeo. I'm watching whatever the hell is on, right? I'm always watching the sport. Um, so she, she laughs and says, do we care about what's on? You know, do we actually care about these teams? I'm like, we don't care about these teams. It's okay. But um, like I watched the Super Bowl yesterday. Like that's just, I'll watch the Major League Baseball when it comes on. I'll watch. But what do you think it is that drives you? Like what, what fuels you, you, you've, you've accomplished great things and, yep. and you do great things daily for your clients. Well, what do you, what is it that drives you? What's in the firm or is a person, um, is it the same thing or are they different things? I think I want to be known as somebody who is reliable and consistent 
And I've always wanted to be that. Like I never came, I never came to the firm with my dad's at Rio Tinto. So I get the work, you know, I, I've always had to, um, get my, um, clients just, or my, my colleagues or whoever from a basis of being myself, what drives me now, having been at the firm this long is to have a really, really interesting practice, meet interesting people along the journey who uh, in some cases give me work. In some cases in the cub world, I'm just meeting really interesting people every day out there. I feel horrific when I let people down. Like Mm. I, I just, I want to make sure that if someone involves me, I might lose a case, but I won't lose a case because I didn't Try out the beds. Correct. Yeah, go go a hundred percent. And one, what are your thoughts on? You said it briefly, which is, I don't know if I'm lucky or if I worked hard. Well, I've had a few thoughts on this topic. Do you think that um, it's a luck thing, or do you think not for you personally in general, it's a luck thing, success, or do you think it's a, a, a smart thing? Mm. Is it luck? Yeah. Is it brain power, or is it effort? Yeah, that's real interesting. It could well be effort. You know, because um, I wasn't the smartest at uni, but I did well. Relative to most of my mates, I was, um, I got better marks, but relative to some other people in law, you know, I'm, I'm third tier, you know, like I just, but um, I've always worked, I've always worked very, very hard, but then um, I can see people working harder than me. Mm. So, um I have had some things happen in my career that have happened that I use the word luck. It's lucky that a friend of mine left the firm and went into that company and that company got me to do work. And because that guy got me that work, um, I've got this whole sports practice. Is it, it's F. just a perspective, yeah. What what is it? Because you know, I would, that guy didn't have to give me that work. No, but that's that that's not luck. That's that's. Oh, is it luck that you met him? Yeah, it's just perspective on life. But uh, I think that you have to. I mean, you've got luck. I really like how we've actually split them up. Luck, brain power, because people are smarter than others. Hmm. Um, effort, because people work harder than others. Hmm. But I actually think there's a secret one as well, which I just wrote down, which is ego. I think ego is very important. I think, like, you hear of these people that have done these great things. Um, like, I, I'm actually reading the WeWork book at the moment, The Billion Dollar Loser or whatever it's called. And um, this guy had a ridiculous ego. You hear all these people with huge, huge egos, and I don't mean ego in the negative sense of the word. I mean ego in the fact that that person believes that they're actually capable of achieving Why? Mm. X, whatever. Yeah. yeah, And and because they believe they're able to do that, they then view the world as a place that they're able to do it in. And when luck serves them an opportunity, they take it. You know, when the option to work hard or not hard yeah. arises, they work the hardest because their ego is telling them that, hey, you can do this. To do this, you need to do you need to work hard. So they work hard. The brain power, the brain power is the only one that it falls over on. But no, but I, I, I really like the thought because to me, if you're using ego in that sense, it's a desire to work harder than the next person.
person and a desire to overcome what you may think is a deficiency in your brain power next to the next person yeah to drive yourself to a position where you are equal to them um, or feel gr- better or feel better my point is that by ego i mean it's not in like openly saying you're better than someone or even believing that you're better than someone as a person. What it is is the belief in yourself. It's yeah. not in comparison to someone else. It's not better or worse than someone else externally to you. It's, hey, I can achieve something great. I believe I can achieve something great. And therefore, the way you view the world is to find something great, whether that be luck, whether that be hard work, whether that be learning to increase. You can increase your brain power too. You can study yeah. and you can do, you know, um, yeah, I'm but also very, very positive, that Daniel. Like yeah. uh, that, that positivity. I will speak to um, – I will be standing in, uh, you know, downstairs having a drink with a cup member and they will be talking about their problem and if it's an IP problem and it's solvable, I will believe that I can solve it. That's just that, – that's the ego. Um, I'll, I'll be confident – that, that I can deliver a positive outcome and that's that's the optimism. Um, I'm notoriously optimistic. I think most successful people ask my Collingwood oh. supporting friends. Like <laughs> I'm um, every year it's like this is the year, we look good, it's gonna happen. My friends are like, no, no, we're terrible, we're horrible, we're hopeless. I'm like, no, no, it's, no, no. And that optimism has hurt in that sense. That's okay. <laughs> but um, if you're a pessimistic down and some lawyers are like that, right? Some people are like that. People you view like the that. world in a down way, in a then bad light. People are like, I don't really want to talk to Chris because he's a downer. He makes me feel down. You basically want to have positive interactions with people. Yeah. And that's just in life. Like, imagine, you're right. Like, if, every time I speak to someone, and I've got a few friends like this or people like this, uh, we just speak to them. There's always a problem. The world's always against them. Yeah, woe is oh, me. Woe is me. It's like, but you speak to someone else and, you know, they've just overcome a huge adversity and they're seeing positives and they're, wow, look at this. We should do this. Oh, by the way, I just learned this. You, you know, all of a sudden you're like, I want to hang around that person. I reckon that's what a lot of members get from Cub. Mm. There's a lot of positive people in the room because they had to be to accomplish what they have. And, and, and that a lot of members say like, um, Cub's giving me so much more energy. Like I, I come yeah. and I get energy. But, but um, speaking of it, I guess what has been um, – what, what have you loved most about the club since since joining? So it's a really interesting oh, – I, I can answer the question because um, you and I have discussed this a number of times. I have always felt – and I've said this to a number of members. I've always felt a quasi-imposter in the club because I'm not a business entrepreneur. But you've always said to me, well, in fact, you are – think of your legal practice as entrepreneurship within the firm. And you've caused me to think about my practice in that fashion. And um, I've actually come to terms with that, that yes, I am a bit of an entrepreneur within the firm. I bring work to the firm. Um, I'm, I'm in charge of the Australian Innovation Committee for the firm. The firm sees me as an innovative partner that does interesting things. I originally joined the, joined Cub uh, one, to uh, expand my network of uh, people that I could speak to that were beyond my immediate mates and lawyers. And uh, I rolled in and every time you roll into the to the cub and there's 20 people, 50 people, 
um, there's always somebody interesting. The membership base to a to a woman or a man is interesting people. For me, I mean, I was fortunate. The firm didn't pay for my membership. I paid for my membership. It was my decision to pay my money to join this club to see what I would get out of it. And um, I've got out of it uh, a bunch of uh, – there are people now who are in my life. Um, they're not the people I hang out with every weekend, but there are a bunch of people who I can walk in, shake their hand, and, you know, I would say they're my friend. And um, that's great. You don't make a lot of friends in your 40s, quite frankly. Mm. And so I decided to invest a little bit of money in myself and um, knowing that the network of people that you had built, Daniel, in this place meant if I walked up to someone at the bar and had a conversation with this person, this person is going to own a business, could be a potential client, but more particularly is going to be an interesting person. You could be the most boring – Thing. You make cans, right? You make 50, 100 billion cans a year. doesn't seem very exciting. But there are issues being the can man, TM. I'll give you that one as well later. What's TM? Trademark. Oh, I just made that, that up. It's the can man. It's a great <laughs> name. <laughs> um, so, you know, if you're, the, if you're the business that does cans, you have supplier issues. You have employee issues. You have whatever – um, issues is in your world and, and you can relate to it. You can relate to it. You can talk to them and they might be like, oh, I'm having this issue today in my business because um, the, my biggest competitor has decided to um, steal 10 of my staff. You know, oh my God, it's a bad day. And I, can, and I can be like, yeah, I hear you. It's a bad day. I've had a client that had this problem. And it would suck. Yeah. It would <laughs> yeah. suck, you know. It sucks. And it happens in business, right? It, of course. But that, so. having that group of people to relate to is tremendously valuable. Like yeah. you said, you can't speak to your uh, family. You can't speak to your friends about it. You're looking like people like yourself are looking for a group of people that they can to speak to about mm. this type of stuff and, and build friendships with. And and it's fun. Like, I don't care what anyone says. It is fun meeting new people and making new friends and, and thinking like like – Put it like this, think back a year or since joining Cub or whatever, mm. all the people in your life now that you know in your network that are your friends or people that you know, you've know got a good relationship with yeah. that, that are now there. Yeah, exactly. It's cool to think about, isn't it? It's really cool. Yeah. It's really cool. So to wrap up. Final thoughts. Well, yes. Give us, just give us, I guess, how, wait, how many kids do you have? So I have two of my own. Yep. So you've got two kids, yep. a boy and a girl? Or? I've got two girls and my wife has a son. So okay. there's three in my family. So. You can only give them one piece of advice in regards to achieving whatever their ambitions are in life. One piece of advice in regards to success or business. Yeah. What, what would that be? So I put – The most important thing. I put this quote here that says, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But for me, it's we've talked about um, that concept of being positive, consistent, reliable, and do what you're going. Do what you say you're going to do. Mm-hmm. So, if my if I say to my children, deliver, deliver. If you're going to say you're going to be a fashion designer, and you say I'm going to turn out fifty new designs this month, turn out fifty designs this month. Mm. Don't not do it because oh, I didn't feel like it. Exactly. Deliver. 
Back your word. Back your word. Always. But um, and as a patent attorney, that's probably the most important thing you should be doing. If you say you're gonna, if you say you can register this trademark, register that. Register the trademark. Yeah. Correct. Don't don't call them in three weeks and going, I forgot. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Thank you for including. Um, you know, a professional as opposed to a, a straight-up business person in your club. I think it's been uh, absolutely great for me and I spend a lot of time behind your back telling people how great this place is. <laughs> I so. love that. Thank you so much. But uh, like I've told you many times, your area of expertise, and that's what makes the club strong. It's the combined value of all our members and you bring a tremendous value, as does each member. That's why they're here and that's why they're invited to be a member. Um, which is evident in your dealings with all the members, right? How many, I mean, you've done our, mm. uh, you've done our logo and, and, and patents and w- w- um, whatever it's called. Probably, probably worked with at least 20. Now. Hey, that's a lot of, that's a lot of members. So, yeah. so obviously the community loves you, but thank you so much, Chris. No problems. Um, and guys, if you want to um, uh, get in contact with Chris, go to cub.club forward slash podcast. You'll have his uh, details there. You can reach out to him. Um, otherwise reach out to us at cub. Um, I hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks.